Welcome to the Restoration Church weekly podcast. Please take a minute to subscribe to our YouTube channel and follow us on Facebook and Instagram. And be sure to download the Church Center app. This is the best way to stay connected and up to date with all that's happening at Restoration Church. Most importantly, we hope the following message will help draw you closer to Christ. Thanks for listening. Is there anything else left even to say after that? (laughs) Happy Easter, everybody. Hey, real quick, before we jump into our teaching for today, you all should have received a card that looks like this as you enter today. In two weeks, we're starting a series titled Love in a Nutshell. And just take a look at the descriptions. And these are all in scripture, by the way, how love is described. Compassionate, kind, humble, gentle, forgiving, on and on and on. Don't we want more of these in our relationships? Don't we want more of these in our households? Don't we want more of these in our own heart? I think all of our relationships, households, our community would be far healthier if these were far more evident in our lives. And so for three weeks, starting on the 23rd, we're going to talk all about love and what it means and how to attain this kind of life for ourselves and for our neighbors, our loved ones, even our enemies. And then on the other side, you'll find on May 14th, we're starting a brand new series called titled Asking for a Friend. Over the last several weeks here, we've been collecting questions that our community has been asking, theological questions, cultural questions, all sorts of questions from all sorts of different angles. And so we're going to address all of your questions, most of your questions, uh, throughout this series. Uh, and you might think, yeah, my question's not on here. Well, I, I want you to know that these questions are very generic questions. I tried to make a generic question that is going to cover many questions underneath it. And so this is one question that's going to cover many topics. So there's going to be a lot packed into these messages. Pray for me, by the way, as we can do this. And then um, you may be wondering, like, okay, there was a line of question here that many of you asked me, many, many of you asked me, pertaining to sexuality and what Jesus and Scripture has to say regarding the culture of sexuality today. And so starting after this series, we're going to spend five weeks talking all about sex. How fun is that? Okay. <laughs> Invite your friends. It's going to be a good time. But that is to you, we do certainly invite you back, we invite you back, we invite you back to join us. Yeah, calm down, sorry, it's going to be okay. (laughs) Calm down. Uh, We'll talk way more about that coming up and we'll prep you for it. So, Um, All that to say, we invite you back to learn with us uh, here at Restoration Church in the coming weeks. But today's Easter, and simply put, the church would not exist without Easter morning. Jesus died on Friday, and though he stated on multiple occasions that he was going to rise from the grave, no one believed him. Nobody heard what he had to say. Nobody understood what he was talking about. Nobody expected him to rise. Nobody was waiting at the tomb a Sunday morning, counting down as the sun was cresting the horizon for Jesus to rise from the dead. Nobody was there. Everyone loved Jesus. Everybody revered him. But come Friday evening, there were no more Jesus followers. He was just another dead Messiah, like all the other Messiahs that had come before him. He did incredible things. He taught amazing truths. But come Friday night, the Jesus movement was over. And then, Sunday morning, a few women are are on their way, as we just learned in this very funny video. A few women are on their way to the tomb to embalm his body, another indication that they believed he was going to stay dead. And they find that the tomb is empty, that he had risen from the grave just as he had said he would. And this event in human history, launched the church, and this event also launched the hope for the world. 
So the resurrection is a big deal, yes. It is the central event of our faith. Without it, we would not exist. But hope also would not exist. Forgiveness wouldn't exist. New life, new birth, healing, restoration, redemption, all the things that our souls so desperately long for would not exist without the resurrection of Jesus. And so I say that with a little bit of irony because today we are not actually going to look specifically at the story of the resurrection. I have done that many, many years. And so there's a lot of messages out there that talk about the resurrection. We're not going to look specifically at that. But everything Jesus said and did hinges on the resurrection being true. And so today we're going to look at a conversation that Jesus had with one woman in particular. And I think that we can all find ourselves in this story because as Jesus rose from the dead, everything that he speaks over her can also then be true of us. And I hope that you find consolation in that. I hope that you can find some solace in that this morning, that what he speaks over this woman is true of her. And it therefore, because he rose from the dead, can also be true of every single one of us today. If you have your text with you, you're welcome to join me in John chapter 4. If you have a Bible app, you're welcome to turn there as well. Otherwise, text will be on the screen for you. The story begins as Jesus and his disciples are traveling from Galilee in the north down to Jerusalem. But in order to do so, they have to pass through Samaria. Now, Jesus could have gone across the Jordan River and down through Perea and then across back into Judea. But he goes very intentionally through the region of Samaria. And the reason that this this detail is included in the story is because the Samaritans and the Jews had a very, very heated relationship. 700 years prior to this, the Assyrians conquered Israel, the northern tribes, and interbred with the Jewish people, creating a mixed breed and a defiled people. And so the Jews immediately said, you guys aren't authentic, honest Jews. You're half-bred Jews. You're half-Assyrian. You're half-Jews. But beyond that, the Samaritans were the ones who rebelled against Jeremiah's repentance, call to repentance in Jeremiah. And so they actually set up Samaria at that point as a new capital city for who they believed were the true Jewish people. Beyond that, they took portions of the Torah, the Ten Commandments in particular, and they redefined them around the Samaritan people, not the Jewish people. So they took that which was most sacred to the Jewish people, and they redefined it around themselves. And beyond that, there were oftentimes bloody skirmishes with the Jews and the Samaritans. So all these things, this riddled history, makes for a very, very heated relationship with the Jews and the Samaritans. And Jesus could have avoided them, but he didn't want to. He wants to go straight into their midst. And he's going to go to Mount Gerizim at Sikar, which is uh, that little dot and that little triangle right in the middle of that orange spot. Here's what we're told. He came to the town in Samaria called Sikar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon, and so Jesus stops to take a break. He's tired. They've been traveling all day, and he stops at Jacob's well to get some water near Mount Gerizim, which was the sacred place for the Samaritans. It's where they believe they must come to offer sacrifices and be forgiven at Mount Gerizim. It was the holy place they set up when they separated from Israel. He has sent his travel companions off at this point to go find some food while he rests all by himself at this well. It's the middle of the day, we're told. It's about noon. It's at that point of the day when the sun is the hottest and nobody is at the well doing the hard work of gathering water from this hundred foot deep well. You go to draw water in the cool of the day, at the beginning of the day or the evening. So when the cool, when the the day is coolest, but not in the hot, the heat of the day where it's going to be hardest, he assumes he's going to be alone. But while he's there resting, a Samaritan woman approached to draw water. Odd, right? Because nobody draws water in the heat of the day. The only reason that you'd gather water at noon was because you wanted to be alone. 
You didn't want anybody else there with you drawing water. You weren't welcome, perhaps, to draw water with the others. This woman was ostracized by her community. She was the scarlet letter. She was the talk of the town. She didn't want to hear the ridicule and the gossip. She didn't want to be bullied by all the other people who were at the well drawing water. This woman, I think, is a shell. She is a hardened, embittered woman. She's angry at life because all she's ever known at life is people making fun of her, ridiculing her, tearing her down, bullying her, beating up on her. Her heart is pummeled. I don't even think she looks up at Jesus. I don't even think she wants to interact with anybody. Everybody has only ever heard of her in life. She's despairing and she is broken. She's not even interacting, but Jesus says to her, will you give me a drink? And the Samaritan woman said, you're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? Remember, the Jews do not associate with the Samaritans. Right? There's all this hostility and this pent-up anger and this pent-up aggression. Again, Jews don't uh, tolerate Samaritans. They hate each other. And so she wants to be left alone. She doesn't want to interact with her. The reason she came to the well at this time of the day was that so she wouldn't have to interact with anyone. She wants to get on with her duty of getting water and go about her miserable life. But there's this man here. And to make matters worse, it's a Jewish man. And all she has ever known about men is that they have hurt her and abused her throughout her life. They have not treated her well. But Jesus, I think, sees right through this hardened shell, this embittered individual, this this outward angst. And he sees a tender, raw heart that has just been beat up by life, pummeled by life. This woman presents herself as tough and weather-worn, but... She's a mess inside. Can anybody relate to that? You don't have to raise your hand. Life is tough sometimes, isn't it? People do bad things to one another. We beat up on each other. We ridicule each other. We tear each other down. We hurt each other. We're selfish. And in that selfishness, we are hurting others. I think it's a very common experience of all of our experience. And more often than not, it tends to create a hardened shell around us, around our hearts. We don't want to let people in because we just think we're just going to get more abused if we let people in. And so we keep them at an arm's length. And that's this woman. And so often it's us as well. But Jesus knows this woman. He sees her. He sees her hurt. He sees the angst. He sees the hardened shell. And Jesus answered, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink... You would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Now, to this woman, the living water simply means fresh water, running water, not water that's at the bottom of a well or sitting there stagnant and hasn't moved in you know decades. She wants living water. It's preferred. It's fresh. It's not full of bacteria. Of course, that's the water she wants. But she's confused. Uh, Sir, the woman said, you, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? I mean, this is the equivalent of saying, why are you talking to me? Why are you talking to me? Like, I I don't want to have this conversation. I'm here to do my business, to get my water. Why are you talking to me? Why are you bothering me? Who do you think you are? Everything you say is stupid. Everything you say is ridiculous. Do you think you're greater than Jacob? Jacob himself couldn't find living water in this, on this mountainside, and so he had to dig this well down. Are you saying you're greater than he is? It's hard to decipher from the text, but I think this woman had an edge to her voice. She's a little angsty. 
little hardened, a little embittered. She's certainly in despair. She's heartbroken. She's been ostracized probably her whole life. She's never been invited. She's always talked about and never talked to. From her youth, she was only ever used and abused. She was told she was worthless, a good-for-nothing, troublesome wife, always rejected and never loved. And I'll tell you how we know all this in, in just a second, but this woman, she's, she's getting heated in this moment, right? She's talking to Jesus, and she's getting angsty, and she's getting annoyed. And Jesus, however, remains calm and collected. He remains compassionate and empathetic. Oftentimes I think, you know, um, <clears throat> when those moments of great despair and when the hurt comes upon us and we're getting used and abused and life treats us unkindly we tend to think god do you care god are you there and maybe god you're actually the source of all this because certainly if you're not the source of it you could have done something about it so certainly you don't even love me you're not capable it's typically how the reasoning goes but that's not the picture we get here of jesus right this woman is heated and 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 getting irritated at jesus and he comes to her calm and collected and compassionate and empathetic He sees her hurt and her heart, and he doesn't shun her or go offended at her tone, but rather extends an invitation. It's an invitation that he extends to all of us if we're willing to listen. Jesus answered, well, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. Again, he's referring to earthly water, the water that she's drawing up from the well. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. I see you. I see that you're hurting. I see that you've carried around the weight of your burden, the weight of your sin, the weight of other people's sin, the weight of a broken heart and the feelings of unworthiness and the feelings of not being loved. I see that you've carried around that your whole life. I see you. I see you. I see you. I know. Everything that you've been searching for is what he says. Acceptance, worth, unconditional love, peace, grace, forgiveness. I can provide for you. I can fulfill your deepest longings. I can heal your broken heart. But the woman is confused again. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. She thinks he's talking about some magical water that will take away her earthly thirst. And at this point, it's obvious that Jesus and the woman are having two very different conversations. The woman looks at her life and says, yeah, this is my lot. I, I feel worthless. I feel unlovable. I feel ashamed and unwanted. But wouldn't it be great if there was a magical water that would at least take away my thirst so that I wouldn't have to keep coming here to this well and fear that all the other women in my community are going to be there and they're going to ostracize me and bully me and ridicule me and make fun of me? Wouldn't it be great if I could at least avoid coming here every day? Maybe at least have one good thing going on in my life. But she's just not getting it. So Jesus must help her realize some things about her and about him. Jesus at this point puts on his therapist hat. And he helps her mine out the origins of her hurt. It's weird, right? The conversation is going to take a very drastic turn here. And a lot of commentators are like, you know, we're, we just think that she's trying to change the subject or, or we're not entirely sure why the conversation shifted at this point. But I think Jesus is trying to help her mine out her hurt, get to the bottom of why she feels the way she does about herself, get to the bottom of why she holds on to all of this bitterness and all of this angst and all of these feelings and all the voices that have been spoken over her for her whole life. He is helping her get to the bottom of that. 
And with this request, I think her head becomes low and her voice becomes soft, right? She's probably irritated. She's probably a little angsty. She's probably a little loud at this point. Why are you here? Why are you talking to me? Why are we having this conversation? But with this one statement that Jesus makes to her, it seems like a very odd statement, but with this one statement, it breaks her down to nothing. He says this, go, call your husband and come back. Seems like an odd thing to say after a conversation about water, doesn't it? But Jesus is digging into the source of her pain. She replied, I have no husband. And Jesus says, you're right. When you say you have no husband, the fact is you have had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. See, this woman is what everybody would have deemed in their society as a very bad wife. In their culture, the husband was the absolute authority. And so he had the authority to call off their marriage whenever he wanted to, really. And and he was the only one who could do it. The wife had no say in whether they were married or divorced. It was only the husband who could do it. And the husband had the right to issue issue a decree of a paper of divorce, really to any reason that he saw his wife being unseemly. If the husband found anything concerning about his wife, he could divorce her. We're told that through the ancient rabbis that if a husband didn't like her cooking, divorce. If she burned the toast, divorce. If she didn't keep the house to his standards, divorce. If he found someone else to be more beautiful, divorce. If she snored at night, divorce. If she couldn't get pregnant or she could only ever bore him daughters, divorce. And of course, adultery would be cause for divorce. And this woman had been divorced five times. Think about this. This woman was the woman that no one wanted. For whatever reason, nobody wanted this woman. She was tossed out five times. She was told and treated as if she was worthless, a disgrace, unlovable, unwanted, unacceptable, a good-for-nothing, unable to do anything right, never received grace, never received forgiveness, never met with unconditional love. I mean, maybe she was an adulterer, but maybe she was just clumsy. Or, or maybe she was just a bad cook. Maybe she didn't have parents who, who raised her to, to be the kind of wife that, you know, the Jewish man was looking for. Maybe she snored at night. Maybe she had sleep apnea. That's right. They run CPAC machines to help her. All she was ever told again and again and again was how pathetic she was, how worthless she was, how broken she was, how sinful she was to the point that she would rather be left alone than live with other people who would just remind her of how unwanted she was within their society. She was a failure, a disgrace, broken, guilty, ashamed sinner. And Jesus here is prodding at that hardened outer shell, trying to break through the walls of the fence that she had built up. As he does so, the mood begins to change, right? The hurt in her begins to rise and it begins to bleed through those, those cracks in her heart and disguise and she begins to calm me down and she begins to get introspective. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you're a prophet because you know things about me that I've never revealed to anybody else. You know things about me that I've actually done a really thorough job at trying to keep hidden from society and yet you know everything about me and so obviously there's something special about you. So let me ask you a question. What am I supposed to do with this? And she's not just asking the question for herself, I think. And asking this question, she is asking it for all of us who have ever felt the weight of a broken world. What am I supposed to do with it? 
you know, I, I don't know your unique situation. I don't know your life story, but I do think that what she is experiencing is a universal human experience. It may not be to the extent that she's experiencing. To some extent, we have all experienced a broken world. We've all experienced the painfulness of life. We've all tied our hearts to those experiences. We've all felt the words of people that have shaped us over the years. We've all made choices that have hurt others. We've all made choices that have hurt ourselves. We've all received the hurt from other people's choices. We live in a broken, fallen world. We carry around guilt for wrongs that we've done. I know we've all felt the bitter sting of shame from time to time. I know we've all wallowed in self-pity a time or two. I know we've all turned on the news and seen the craziness of the weather and what's happening in the governments and the wars throughout the world. The world is broken and we carry around the weight of that. We live in a world that doesn't trust, that trust doesn't exist, where selfishness reigns, or lust objectifies and envy steals, greed manipulates. We use other people as pawns. We grieve. Grieving is just our agreement with God that the world is broken. That's all we're doing when we grieve. We've all grieved not only our own experiences, we grieve a broken world. We're all convinced, if we think hard enough and we think introspectively about our own experience, we're all convinced that our experience in this world is sideways. It's broken. And what am I supposed to do with that knowledge? This knowledge, these feelings, this belief that I'm broken and that the world is a mess, what am I supposed to do with this? Because our ancestors, she says, worshipped on this mountain. But you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Now, in their day, worship just meant, where can I find forgiveness? Where can I be forgiven? Where can I be made whole? Where can I go to make my life make sense? How they did this was they would take an animal, right? They would know that they're guilty. They would take an animal. They would know that their guilt caused their sin and their death. They would take an animal, and they would place it on an altar. They would confess their sins and how their life is broken over it. They would look at it in the eyes, confess their sins. They'd take a knife out. They'd slit its throat, let the blood run down, and they would transfer their guilt, the wages of their sin, upon that animal, and they would believe that they were forgiven. At least until they committed another sin, and they had to go back and do it again. But that's what worship meant. I don't know. Maybe the reason that that I haven't, <clears throat> maybe the reason that I haven't been restored. Maybe the reason that I don't feel forgiven, maybe the reason that I don't walk free from these experiences is because I'm worshiping on the wrong mountain. Maybe I need to go somewhere else to offer my offering. I mean, I'm trying with every fiber in my being. I'm trying to find solace in my life. I'm trying to find peace. I've sacrificed so many animals and nothing has worked. Maybe I'm doing it in the wrong place. And Jesus goes to her and says, woman, and that's not a, that's not a, term of disrespect it's actually a term of endearment it's what a a loving husband would actually say to a loving wife jesus replied believe me a time is coming when you will worship the father neither on this mountain nor in jerusalem you will not find true and lasting forgiveness in other words by sacrificing an animal in a temple that's not going to heal you you doing something is not going to work forgiveness and healing will never be found through what you do You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do not know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yes, it's true. You've been misguided, as everybody has been misguided. The sacrificial system was never meant to heal you. It was always meant to remind you that you are a sinner and that God is gracious. But I can direct you, he says, to true healing. A time is coming. 
and has now even come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in the truth. Now, this word for spirit in the Greek language, the original language of the text, is the word pneuma. It can mean a lot of things, but at its very core, it means the very fullness of life. God is the fullness of life, he is saying, and those who seek to honor him and receive his grace through his forgiveness must honor him with their life and do so authentically and honestly. Now, a lot of preachers have taken that kind of message over the years, and they have said, so if you want to get on God's good side, you better clean yourself up. You better get yourself straight, and you better turn your life around, and you better fix every little part of you because your whole life will be under God's scrutiny. And he's looking at your life with an examiner's eye. And if there's any little part of your life that is not wholly submitted to God, then you know what happens. And a lot of people have tried to rise to that challenge and pretend to be successful. And they put on a mask pretending the world that they're righteous. While a lot of other people walked away not only from those preachers, not only from those churches, but from God believing that they were damned. Because as much as they wanted to, they just couldn't clean themselves up. As much as they tried, they just couldn't get their act together. And as much as they wanted to, they just could not find the strength to overcome their own failures. People like this woman would have heard that and they would have sunk lower into despair. And it's those people that Jesus comes around And says, friends, those seeking true forgiveness will not find it in anything that they do. No sacrifice can set you free. No amount of good work will climb your way back into God's good graces. Grace is a gift. A gift isn't earned. A gift isn't deserved. A gift is simply received. And so my son, my daughter, Jesus would say, to worship the Father in spirit and in truth means to approach God humbly acknowledging and admitting that you are broken, that you are a sinner, feeling the weight of your sin and the brokenness of this world, spirit and truth is contrition and confession. Approach God with contrition of your heart, with your whole life, knowing that you are broken. And offer it to him. Don't try to sweep it under the rug. Be honest about it. Don't try to deny it through your own good works. Be honest about it. Don't try to blame it away or hide it away or lie it away. Be honest about it. With contrition, come before God honestly and you will receive forgiveness. But again, the woman is confused. The the woman said, I I know that the Messiah called the Christ, the one who will restore all things, is coming. And when he comes, he's going to explain it to us. I I don't know, maybe what you say is true. You know, I've tried and tried, and nothing has worked. I've offered sacrifices my entire life since I was a little kid, and it's never freed me of my guilt. It's never healed me. It's never made me a better person. But I know the Messiah will make it right. He is the end-time restorer. He is the one who will set the world back upright. He is the one who will heal me. He is the one who will forgive me. He is the one who will make me whole. He is the one who will put me and the rest of the world back together. And Jesus looks at her in the eye, and he says, My friend... My beloved, I am the Messiah. And as the Messiah, as God's chosen representative, I am rebalancing this relationship. I will reconcile you to the Father. 
in a way that no other sacrificial system and no other good work and no other attempt that you have ever tried can do. I will reclaim your life. For I am love and I am peace. And I extend it freely to you. I'm going to the band forward. We're going to sing a song as we conclude our time together. This woman was broken, deeply, deeply broken. And, and, and Jesus doesn't ridicule her. He doesn't shame her. He approaches her humbly and tenderly and invites her into a new way of being. Into a way of being that acknowledges that she is unconditionally loved. Where she can admit all of her faults and all of her failures and how everyone has ever treated her and she can lay all of those before him and he does not ridicule her or shame her or guilt her or laugh at her, but he embraces her, mess and all. The disciples at this point in the story arrive with the food that they had gone to get and the, the woman sees them and she runs off towards home, leaving her water jar, the reason she came to the well. The woman went back to the town and said to the people, Come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? And the entire town, is told, we came out and made their way to him. She went back to the town, and for the first time, she didn't rush hidden, hiding her face from all the people. She didn't rush straight into her house and said, I can't interact with anybody because they're only going to abuse me and ridicule me more. I need to hide my face from them. She goes instead into the town square where all the people are gathering, and she starts shouting, maybe, maybe, maybe I have discovered, I have met the Messiah, the healer, the restorer. Could it be that he is here because I now met this man? And he told me everything I ever did, and he did not shame me. He knew it all. He knew all of my sins, all of my failures, all of my regrets, every time, everything that has ever happened to me, all the abuse that I have endured, all the way that all the way people have treated me and hurt me and abused me. He knows it all. He saw it all. He declared it all. He spoke it all over me, but he did not shame me or guilt me or ridicule me. He embraced me in love. Could this be the Messiah? I mean, come on, this woman went to a community, a world that... (laughs) The universal human experience. Just because other people didn't show their hardened disguise like she did doesn't mean that they weren't still wrestling with the same issues. That they weren't wrestling with insecurities and their shame and their guilt and how people have hurt them and how people's selfishness has, has hurt them and how they had hurt other people and the guilt and the shame that they carry. It is a human, universal human experience. She went to a community who was also reeling with the same issues and she said, I have discovered hope. Let me tell you about the hope that I have experienced. I have been met with forgiveness. Let me share with you the forgiveness that I've experienced. I have been met with peace. Let me share with you the peace that I have experienced. And all the town was interested. The people that had ostracized her and ridiculed her and shamed her, they were interested in what she was saying. And they followed her to where Jesus was. And we are told then their response to Jesus at the very end of John chapter 4 is that they all confessed at that point that Jesus truly is the savior of the world. We have a great responsibility, friends, as people who have been met 
with the reconciliation and the redemption of Jesus, with the hope of Jesus, to share the redemption and the reconciliation and the hope of Jesus with our community. Your neighbors, your friends, your family workers, family workers, your family, your co-workers, family business, I'm sure some of you are in that situation. They're all looking for hope. It's a universal human experience. We're all broken. You have an answer. For those who have been met with the love, the unconditional love of Jesus, you have an answer for the solution that they are looking for. Can we be a people who extend that hope to the world? Can we be people who leave from this place with a hope so deeply embedded in us that has transformed us and shaped us and changed us? May it overflow from us onto a world that also is hurting. That's my prayer for us because I know that as I open up the news and I read the news and I watch the news and I think of my own life and the hurts that I've carried with me and the guilt that I've held on to and the times of my life where I've self-pitied and wallowed in that and my insecurities and all those things. Someone came into my life and shared with me the hope of Jesus and it changed everything. And I have an opportunity now to share with you the power of that and you have an opportunity to share with others the power of that as well. Let's be a people who shine the light. And if you have not met Jesus personally, and if you're like, I, I don't know, like that's, that's a cool story and all, but I'd love to chat with you more about the hope we have in Jesus. I'm going to say a prayer for us, and you know, if, if you're at that moment where you're like, man, I don't feel like I know Jesus, but I want to know Jesus, then I would just encourage you to pray this prayer with me. There's nothing magical about this prayer. But it's a prayer of contrition, and it's a prayer of confession. It's an honest it's a prayer of honesty. And it's a prayer of acknowledging who Jesus is in the face of our insecurities and our doubt and our brokenness and our shame and our guilt and all the things that we carry. And so if you're if you're willing, if you have prayed something like this before, I encourage you to do it again because we need to pray something like this constantly. Remind ourselves who Jesus is and what he's accomplished for us. So Heavenly Father, the honesty, the, the confession part is that I am a sinner and I am broken and I know it because the world has treated me as if I am broken and I feel ostracized and I feel alone and and I feel worthless at times and I feel like there is no unconditional love within the world because people hurt me and in my own selfishness I hurt others and I hurt when I'm selfish father so I know that I'm broken and the contrition father is that I I, I feel the weight of it It's it's a heavy burden to carry And so, Father, if if it is true that you have come, Father, to be the source of our forgiveness, to die in our place, to take that burden, and to be that sacrifice, that ultimate sacrifice, to do away with all sacrifices, and you have extended then your forgiveness, Father, I trust that what you have done for me is sufficient. And I don't need to keep trying to free myself, because you have freed me. So thank you, Father, that there's new life in Jesus. Thank you that there's resurrected life in Jesus. I confess. I know, I acknowledge, Father, that I am a sinner, but thanks be to God. Jesus Christ came into the world to save, to heal, to restore, to redeem, and to set sinners back upright. My trust is in you, Father. Thank you for this new life and for this resurrected life. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.